Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time does heal. I think it's a matter of really going into the grief. I think it's about understanding that it has happened and that life goes on. I mean, we see it, what happened after the fire. I have a new grandchild who's living with us here to see that that life, you know, coming so quickly and that we're part of this amazing continuum. So it does have to do with, with time for me but also expressing it, expressing it. I think expressing is, is very important. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Lita Albuquerque is an artist whose body of work has often defied the strictures of convention and, ultimately, canvas. Over the course of her celebrated career, her paintings and sculpture outgrew the traditional materials contained within her studio and expanded to inhabit the land and people around her. To experience Lita's large-scale installations, often tinged in an ultramarine blue pigment all her own, is to dance with dichotomies. At once grounded and transcendent, intimate and epic, earthly and celestial, Lita's work above all is a celebration of how we connect to our environment. It's a creative worldview that was put to test in November of 2018 when the Woolsey fire engulfed the hills around Malibu and destroyed her home and studio. Suddenly, the place in which she spent decades raising her kids and making her art was gone, along with a vast archive of completed works and works in progress. It was a monumental loss that could have been devastating to any artist, and particularly so for Lita whose creative imagination has always been intrinsically connected to her environment. But Lita could not let her grief paralyze her because she had to get to work on the long list of pieces previously commissioned by collectors. That backlog turned out to be her saving grace. Eventually she found that the process of creative expression had resurrected the parts of her she feared the fire had claimed forever. Over the course of a conversation alternately stirring and sublime, Lita generously retraces the harrowing path she's walked to a place of recovery and renewal she simply describes as back. Please enjoy my conversation with Lita Albuquerque. 
Hi, Lita. Welcome. Hi, Lauren. It's great to see you. I'm so excited for this conversation and, and this opportunity to spend this time with you. So thanks so much for doing it. Absolutely. Me too. I want to begin by really introducing you to our listeners, those who may not know you as well. And, you know, in preparation for this interview, I found so many different descriptives of your work and of you as an artist. And I thought, let's put the brakes on that and ask you, how do you talk about yourself and your work as a way really of introducing you to, to the folks who are listening? Well, I think of myself as an evolutionary artist. And what I mean by that is that the work has really taken a very evolutionary trajectory, starting with drawing. The very first things that I did were hundreds and hundreds of very large-scale charcoal drawings. Then they moved into adding more media like oil pastels and pastels and then gesso, and then they became incredibly layered. And it was about mark making, but it was obviously also about something else. It was really about landscape and, and the earth and my relationship to it. And then as I became more and more involved in the art world, I became very interested in working outdoors and I was painting as well. And then it became about making marks out on the land directly. And then from there, it went into performance and film. And so the, the work has really evolved. Not that one media dropped out, but continued in, in different ways. And I still really continually use all, all media to the, what's important for me really at this point it has become from abstraction to the narrative. Mm. And can you talk a little bit about, I'm interested in how you moved from the paper and the charcoal drawing to the outdoors and just a little bit more about the context, the space, the place, something that will echo later in our conversation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And the significance of that to your work. The very first work that I was doing was from uh, a little, it was actually a little bedroom, but overlooking the ocean on this artist colony in Malibu. And I put blankets over the windows so I didn't look and I could just focus on, on mark making. Kept working on paper a lot, abstract kind of works, trying to get to some kind of symbolic uh, gesture. I'd been on this property that was facing south, and it, it was 132 acres of land overlooking the ocean, just this extraordinary, unusual place. And I would take walks up the hill, and as I would go further and further up, I was quite high to the point where I could see the curvature of the earth. And at that time, I was taking dance, and I was thinking about the verticality of my body. And then I noticed that the verticality of my body against the horizon line formed a cross. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder if that's how symbols were initially formed through the interrelationship of the human body with, with the landscape. And so I started doing my very first piece that I call Malibu Line, which is essentially a trench, 14 inches wide, 41 feet long, uh, on a cliff and overlooking the oceans. And then I filled it with ultramarine blue pigment. And so perceptually, that blue extended all the way to the horizon and formed a cross. And then I also did like a shadow of the moon setting with a circle of blue pigment 
and I dusted one of the big boulders there with blue pigment as well. So that was that was the beginning. And then going out to to the deserts and including more color, having to do with star alignments, but the whole idea of of the human in relationship to to the environment. Beautiful. I have maybe what's a slightly unusual question, but it's relevant to the way I experience your work. What happens to that pigment? What happens to that color when, quote unquote, the formal piece is done? It disappears. The wind picks it up. And that to me is, again, a really important part of your work. Yes. That moment when it disappears. Yes. I confess that I I find your work theatrical. I mean, I'm a theater person. But even the way you described what happened to you on that hill and how you engaged felt improvisational to me. Mm. There's an ephemeral part of your work that is in relationship to what is more solid, but that like the theater, it ends, it goes away, it disappears. And I I don't know if this is, if you resonate with this, but I, and of course there's the performance piece of your work that's very deliberate, but I'm also talking about some of the indirect ways in which I find your work incredibly theatrical. I love it. I love it that you say that. When I was five, I, I, I grew up in North Africa in Tunisia, but we lived in Paris for a couple of years from five to seven, and I fell in love with the theater. I mean, just, I was so smitten and I begged my mother to please leave me and I would join a, a children's theater you know, troupe. And of course she didn't, but it was from the very beginning. So theater and dance has always been a very, very important part of my inspiration. And yes, I am very theatrical and I do, or my work is, and I love I love the impact, right? Whether it's ephemeral or not. And the ephemerality, it's interesting that, of course, that comes up. I love the ephemeral. I don't relate that much to the permanent. And it's like theater, the fact that it's one moment in time. I've done wind paintings where I actually capture the wind on the canvas. And again, it's almost there. It's almost like a photograph of the wind, but it's just. I, I love that, that ephemerality, and what's interesting about it is that what I'm interested in is the trace, right? That what remains is the trace in our minds, and that's all we have, right? Anyway, but it was interesting to see how much that is what interests me. It's movement, it's dance, it's theater, it's impact, and then it goes away. Lots that I want to talk to you about the trace, which I find to be a very compelling, but also very moving idea. But just before we get there, I want to tap into a little bit the improvisational nature of the of the work that you do, at least how I understand it and, and perceive it, frankly, but maybe do it through your writing ah. and how you write regularly, as I understand it, in somewhat of an improvisational way and the extent to which you write to think. I love it. I remember right before the fire, I had written, I I am revealed to myself through my writing. (laughs) It's exactly what you say. It's like, I almost can't think. I don't think, you know, I don't think I have to do the writing to know what it is that I'm thinking and feeling. I relate to that completely. (laughs) 
It's fantastic. It's the beginning of the creative process for me. And I think that's what was so um, horrifying for me. And, and, and so I was so grief stricken when the fire came, when I had 50 years of that kind of writing in by hand. But thank God I also had some on, on the computer and I had my laptop with me, which was a blessing. But the writing is, is such an important part and has become increasingly so since the fire. It's almost been, I've spent more time on, on the writing, I would say, in the last couple of years. Do you still do it every day? I mean, is it, is it a practice? Absolutely. Uh-huh. It's a practice, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a practice. Well, let's turn to talking about November 2018. Let's talk about the fire. I think you, you know that we're trying to explore this rather complicated and important question about how our creativity somehow plays a part in how we deal with grief or loss or the difficult challenges of our lives and how we can somehow push through, maybe rediscover, maybe even heal as we move forward with our creative energies. And I'm very interested in exploring your experience with the loss. If you can just let our listeners know what happened in November 2018, and then we can go deeper into our questions. Sure. On November 8th of 2018, I was, well, before, on November 7th of 2018, my husband bought tickets to see Phil Glass's opera. I can never pronounce it, but it was an opera in downtown LA. And he called me working in the studio and he calls me and he says, hey, you know, why don't we stay downtown in a hotel the night of the opera on the 8th tomorrow and we'll that way we'll have we'll make a whole night of it and we never i mean we live in malibu right we never go to a hotel in la and i said oh no carrie you know i'm really busy i can't do that i hang up the phone and then i go i'm really not being very nice here i'll call back oh of course let's do it November 8th happens, we go to the opera, we spend the night in a hotel downtown at five in the morning, I get a call from my son who is in Venice. And he says, Mom, do you know that there's a fire over the 101? And I said, No. He said, Well, you better see if Jasmine's okay. Jasmine is my daughter who was eight and a half months pregnant and living there. And I call her up, we couldn't get through and I finally call her at seven. And she goes, Oh, my God, you know, there and she, she couldn't quite see it yet, but she could smell it. In Southern California, two major fires forcing the mandatory evacuations of more than 200,000 people, including the entire city of Malibu. We have team coverage. And I said, please, you know, grab my hard drives and your dream journals. She had kept journals of her dreams since she was five years old. And I, I jumped in the car and I was not allowed to go up. I couldn't. So I was stuck, I waited for her for four hours. And then it took three, it, three weeks, I think, until we found out if it was, no, maybe not that long, about 10 days, but it felt like forever. And it was devastating. It was, I, I guess I don't know what I was expecting, but I was expecting to see something. I mean, of, yes, some of the walls remained, but of, of our lives. And it was just pulverized. Both your home 
And your studio. And my studio. And everything and in it. Everything in it. An entire life. Burnt. Pulverized. <laughs> Gone. Burnt. Ashes. And it was, I mean, I started, I mean, it's so painful. If I make a list, it's just, it's so long. And again, you know, things that I had never shown, the hundreds of drawings that had done the 70s and 80s that I had wanted to finally come out. I was preparing boxes and boxes for the National Archives, and I had just found all this extraordinary correspondences for, for years by hand on little thin aerograms and just historically, you know, history. And my grandmother's who was, she was a famous singer in North Africa and Tunisia. I had her at 78s. Of course, that was gone. My, my husband's entire collection of his father's works and on and on. My daughter's, all her things and my son and my library and there was so much stuff that was not quite there yet, but all in the works when you're an artist. You always have things around you that you're going to use, that you've written up to 90%, that you've done, you know, it's like, it's the potential and the potential that was never seen. Like I did a lot of books where I illustrated the writings that I finally, you know, decades later, I was going to come out. It was... It is still, it's a shock. And, but I feel the pandemic staying in this place. We, uh, a year and a half after we found this place that actually is only a mile, mile and a half from where our property is. And it's, it's a property of the man who makes all my panels for my paintings. And I have this little studio, that's where I'm looking out right now, this creek. And it really healed me to be able to also to be locked down here was was kind of a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm a I'm an ocean swimmer every day and I could go to the ocean, it's only two miles away. Well, before I ask my next question, I just I just need to. Um, I mean, the the heartbreak I feel for you in listening to it. Um, Thank you. Very very moving, and of course, those images that we were talking about before of what gets swept away, what disappears, and the significance of that which disappears, and what happens to us when our world or part of our world disappears like that. And so maybe we could probe that a little bit too to understand your experience of the creations, the things lost, what happens to your own sense of identity, of who you are, how we tire, sense of ourselves to those things. What happened to Lita? What happened to you? And I mean, beyond the pain of who you were in that moment when it got taken. I couldn't help but go back to my childhood, and there's a story of my parents separated when I was five months old and my father lived in Paris and my mother in Tunisia with us. 
And as a young child, I would go out. We lived on the beach. And I would look out to the horizon. And I was waiting for my father to appear on a ship. And so it was this this longing this this desire and i thought it was going to appear and it's as if the environment was the site of my desire and so having had that loss back then because he never did appear that loss created something in me both i think both an incredible inner life but also perhaps perhaps an inner strength that lost that absence and as many people told me you're so lucky you're an artist because you can express all this right and my art from the beginning really was about presencing that absence so when the absence of my life occurred you know in terms of things and ideas that were written it was i couldn't it was like like i couldn't it couldn't compute like i it was like uh like it didn't it took me year years it's been three years three and a half years almost of having that little child you know it's like did this really happen you know like like not wanting to know it really happened it was really this this very strange thing. But at the same time, I had my life going, right? I had 15 commissions I was working on that I had such an amazing team. The entire art world, it felt, rallied around and helped. And so I had people help me get equipment. Jack Hoffman in Venice gave me a studio. Lauren Bond gave me a place to live in. You know, all this. So I had to do all these things. So I continued. I produce the painting somehow. And then I was also quite a few trips in 2019. And progressively, the first trip I think was in Paris because I was going to have a show there in September. And then it was, I think, Venice. And then it was Greece. And then, and it was all art related. And I could feel that progressively, I mean, when I was in Paris, I was non-existent emotionally. It was for a show that I had in a, a very big group show. And then that was in February. In November, I had this show and people would ask me about the fire and I couldn't talk about it. But still, progressively, the healing got better through making work, through the team, the generosity of people around me, and through traveling, which is and it was hard. It was hard to go at first. But to have that, it took me away from from that. And the most important thing is my husband who held me in his arms every morning, two, three hours when I was crying. Mm. And so I, I had incredible emotional support. And now I feel, I think more than anything, it's my books, <laughs> my books. I, I've now created a writing studio here. And now I have my books. I bought some artifacts. You know, I have new things. I'm back. And I have nature looking here, and I really am back. And it's only thinking about it that I feel the pain, but I would say I'm, I'm back.
I really want to explore how one gets back. But before I do, there's a, an online project that you've just done called Supernovae. And it's pretty clear uh, and brilliant, I think, this thank you. The supernova, right? I mean, <laughs> what you. the supernova is as, and you were alluding to it earlier, as, uh, you know, this, this star in... I don't mean to be pedestrian, but this ball of fire that once was, but is lost and gone, and that consumes, and is, we know intellectually it's gone, but on Earth, we can still see it. Its residue and its image can still be perceived. Yes, yes, exactly. And so just, I want to invite you to just work with that delicious metaphor a little bit more. Because wow. <laughs> I think it's so beautiful. Absolutely. And not only that, but it's a supernova that creates worlds, that creates planets, mm -hmm. right? We come from the explosion of supernova. We are the explosion of supernova. We have the gold, you know, all heavy metals are formed through, through the bursting of supernovas into planets and solar systems. So it is, it is such a beautiful metaphor. And we contain all of that, the fire and the consumption and the creation. So it's all, it's all in one. I remember uh, staying at a friend's place up in the Malibu Hills <clears throat> as well. And there was a Tibetan uh, monk there. And the Tibetan monk said to me, you know, nothing is ever lost. And at that time, I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> right? But it's true. It is in us. I mean, it, in reality, nothing is ever lost from, if we want to go that far, from the Big Bang in our bodies. We do have that information if we could learn how to access it. And a lot of my work is about that, is, you know, if I want to go that way. It's both the personal, both the extremely personal, and it's also reflection. And are those, I call them things, but they're the precious parts of your life that were taken in the fire, that were gone, your home, your studio, your books, your, your creations, your, all of it. And I, I'm just trying to get more specific here. Does it remain as that kind of image, that kind of residue, though we know the ball of fire has, has given it up? What remains for you in all of that? And does it continue to fuel your, your life and work, even though you can't touch it anymore? You know, that property was something I created so intentionally for my children. I wanted them to not have a, a life that was so much about the media. I wanted them to be in nature, away from all that. I wanted them to be connected to the earth. But I also wanted a place that, that reminded me of my childhood of North Africa, and I had created that. And the loss of it was really intense. What remains is, I think what remains is the reinvention. I remember my husband saying, it's not about loss, it's about reinvention. Right. And what remains in my heart is love, is the horizon line, because you can now, okay, that one thing, my other daughter, Isabel Albuquerque, who's an amazing artist, hadn't seen the property 
uh, until much later. And when she saw it, she got out of the car and she went, oh, my God, we now have a 360 degree view. We now a 180 degree view of the ocean. Oh, my God, this is like being on an island. Oh, my God, this is so beautiful. So she was able to see, you know, what what we couldn't see with all the trees. And she made me see the future and the potential. Mm-hmm. And what remains is the years that we had there because of the children. They're all involved in creative fields and all had friends and performances and films that were done there and weddings. And what remains is all that history inside of us. And now to see that this is not about the past, what we're going to recreate and reinvent. It's not about the past. It's totally new. And that's great. That's great. Right. Right. In the supernova, we can still see things that are no longer. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, as you were speaking, I remember I I once had a stress test for my heart. It was just normal, nothing, anything was wrong. But I remember distinctly that I asked the the person who was administering the test, you know, are you trying to see how far you could push my heart? And the response was, no, we just push it to a certain extent. And the measurement is all in how long it takes you to recover. Oh, oh. And I also thought that was this beautiful metaphor itself, too. <laughs> oh. That the whole point of it was oh, wow. not so much the stress, but the recovery. Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, we're lucky as artists that we can recover much faster because we can express. Because we can express, right? right? Yeah. And to that, I mean, you know, I also kept thinking, when you look at a burnt landscape and you've just heard about or read or experienced directly, as you did, the destruction that the fire creates, and then like within weeks, like the green starts to come through. So beautiful. (laughs) It was so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yes. That entire trajectory of the recovery of the fire was so beautiful and and stunning. And yes, nature recovers. We we recover too. We recover. But that's what I mean. It's also, this is also Lita's story, right? There it was, all burnt and in ashes. And then it began to. Yes. Yeah. so yeah. let's explore what you did. Let's okay. explore a little okay. bit more what ha- <laughs> how the green came through. Okay. The green has come through. It's really extraordinary. Life began to reemerge because I had exhibits that I had committed to. I'll never forget two weeks after the fire, I had committed to a talk at the Laguna Museum. And I thought, there's no way I can do this. Absolutely no way. And instead, I did go and I turned it into a performance of this character where I was all in blue pigment with a suit and I laid down on a plinth and I talked for 90 minutes. And there wasn't a sound in the room, nor was there anybody shooting any images Mm. or anything. It was really powerful because I'd just come from this experience and I said, this is Lita totally bare, you know. So I turned that into a a performance, even though it was very real. One of the things that that when I asked Jasmine to get my hard drives, she didn't get all of them, but she got this film that I had shot in Bolivia uh, that year that hadn't been edited. 
And so one of the things, one of the green shoots has been this film called Liquid Light. And it's so fraught with with symbolism in terms of the fact that we're both in the film. My daughter Jasmine is a performer and a dancer and choreographer. And she's the lead in the film. She's the character and I'm in there as well. And now we're going to be showing it for the first time at the Venice Biennale in one of their collateral events. So that's extraordinary that uh, I've been working on that for the last year, editing and putting that together. I'm thrilled. It's part two of a trilogy. I started, I did one in 2016, and it's all based on this 25th century female astronaut who comes to the planet to remind us of our connection to the stars and to interstellar consciousness. And it's interesting because when I look back at all the work I've done, it's almost like this character's work in that it's all about connections. And so there's a real autobiographical (laughs) element to it. And I recently did a, a performance. It was a rogue performance in Cairo in October. And I had created this costume with this costume designer and my daughter and this blue dress with a long train, maybe 20 feet long. And I had a veil and I just walked towards the pyramids. And in that moment, some kind of transmission happened. It was very powerful. I could feel, I could feel the grief of humanity. It was, it was this kind of a moment in time. But I also knew that this character had created was part of, it, it just felt like, okay, I'm this character. And I, a friend of mine, when I told her the story, she said, wow, it sounds like it took 200,000 years in the past and 200,000 years in the future for you to have come to that moment. And that's what it felt like. So yeah, I'm in a show in Copenhagen. I was in a show in Paris. And so I keep going because it is this moment in time where everything comes together and where I'm finally understanding. Everything in my life is coming together, all the struggles, all the losses, all the triumphs, but it's all my thinking is finally coming to a certain understanding And now I feel I'm just beginning. (laughs) Wow. Wow. You know, it's so interesting, just one element of what you just described too, that when we are in a state of feeling like we can't go on, that there's something about necessity, right? So you had to, you felt like you had to show up for some of these projects or you had to show up in Laguna, right? And, you know, to use that phrase from Aeschylus, necessity descends and somehow it can be a catalyst for us to then begin to move on again. I mean, there's a there, there's this important way in which we're compelled because we need to, even if we're feeling like we can't. Yes. Right? <laughs> you know, there's this wonderful, the final uh, line in Beckett's novel, The Unnameable, it reads, I can't go on, dot, 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 I'll go on. And at the moment, <laughs> even great. when we can't feel like we can't, we begin to that's it. The light has to continue. Those green sprouts have to come through and we recover somehow. And it's so beautiful to me and touching to hear about you and 
in your recovery. So I just want to ask you a little bit about some language around this that maybe you've used and maybe others use and see if it makes sense. One bit of language is that we have to let go. Here, let me contextualize it this way and tell you. Okay. I'm now experienced grief in a way I've never experienced before. I lost my father a couple of months ago. I'm so sorry. I heard that. Yes. A man I adored beyond measure. But I'm at this point in my life where I've never had to grieve like that. Mm. I never really, frankly, understood mm. entirely what it meant. Mm. And in a way, I want to explore that with you. It's very raw for me right now. Mm. And so, you know, and people talk about it comes in waves. People talk about, you know, you need to let go in a certain kind of way and, and move on. And I'm just wondering about how you think about grieving and how you have grieved this profound moment in your life, this moment of loss that's also allowed for you, as you've pointed out, to, to grow and change and be in a different kind of relationship. I don't, I don't think it's a matter of letting go. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the love you have for your father will always be. You don't want to let go of that, right? No, not of that. Not of that, right. No, but you don't, even of, I mean, sure, the, the grief and everybody talks about all the, the different stages. But I think it is, obviously, it's a matter of time. I mean, time does heal. And it's, I think it's a matter of really going into the grief. I had this moment, I, I sort of touched on it a few minutes, a couple of minutes ago, but I had this moment, there was a couple who was shooting me on the property after the fire. And they, we stood by where my sanctuary had been, where the library had been and where my daughter lived, where, where nothing remained. I mean, not even walls on, on the, in that part. There was many places on the property. And they asked me questions. And I realized that at that moment, I was, what I mentioned earlier, this little four-year-old who could not, could not believe that it had happened. You do want to go beyond that, right? I think that's because that's trauma and, and that can keep you there. I think it's about understanding that it has happened and that, as you said, life goes on. I mean, we see it, what happened after the fire. I have a new grandchild who's living with us here and to see that, that life, you know, coming so quickly and that we're part of this amazing continuum. So it does have to do with, with time for me. Yeah. And, but also, you know, using it or, or, but also expressing it, expressing it. I think expressing is, is very important. That engagement is. The engagement. Right. Yeah. yeah the engagement with, with the grief. Or grieving as a, an act of engagement. Yes. Yes. <laughs> how would you, how would you, what form would that take for you? Well, I think it would, I think like you, it takes the form of expression. It takes the form of making. Right. It takes the form of trying to shape memory, depth of love, and even the things of our lives into a new green form. It's an act of recovery and renewal in and of itself, maybe, grieving. 
And loss is such a big part of being human. Right. One of the things that happened is that I feel when you go through a loss like your father, where the love was so intense, or the house, I felt anyway that I could, I could handle anything. You know, after that, mm. once you have that, there's a strength. And one thing had to happen in 1993. I was teaching at Art Center at a graduate seminar until 10 p.m. And it was during the fires back then. And I thought my library had burned down. And I was like devastated, devastated. And something came through me. And I realized that all of a sudden this elemental self came out of me. And it was, that's where I let go back then. I let go of, of that loss, and all of a sudden the elemental self came, and that's all I needed because all the books, everything was in me. Your father's in you, you know? So it was like you, when you hook in, if, if you can hook into that self void of of other connections, then you have all those connections inside yourself. That's what I experienced back then. And I wrote about that. And it was interesting to reread it because we found, we found one book. Jasmine had grabbed one of my books and that writing was in there from 15 years before about the fire. And I think it, you know, it, that was a very important lesson that we have it all inside of us, all that connection. And now, as you look at it again, you're the astronaut traveling time. I love that. <laughs> a great character. I haven't really given you enough time to talk about it. But oh, I know. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Is that elemental self, that all of that you're carrying now, moving its way into these next phases of your work and your, your creative expression? Yes. Yes, it really is. Is that the power of it in the moment, really? Maybe, again, maybe that's, that's the grieving, really, too. I right? think so. A another way of saying what we just said, right? Absolutely. That's interesting you should say that, because that moment in front of the pyramids in that costume, yeah. I, yeah, that was the grieving, you know, that was. And that was the elemental self. I didn't realize it till this moment that you said that. And so that does, that's from, from this moment, that's where the work will come from. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> Lita, look, I've admired you and Aww. been compelled by your work for so long now. And Thank to have you. had this opportunity to explore these questions with you and, and your open, generous, honest, deep responses are so meaningful and I, I really am so grateful to you for doing this with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. I, I so appreciate it and I'm so glad we've done this together. It really means a lot to me, too. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, 
share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Changeland. <laughs>